Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 15, Cognitive Neuroscience in the Classroom with Dr. Louise Allen Walker. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. I am pleased to say that we are joined remotely today by another guest, a new guest to the podcast. Um, So I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Louise Allen Walker. Welcome. Oh great, thanks very much Emma, thank you. Um, (laughs) I feel like I'm on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of are. I'd like to... uh, yeah, it's it's not the magic of live radio. Maybe one day we'll uh, we'll do that. But I think they would put the fear of God into our guests, don't you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. <laughs> Pirate radio from the top of the halls of residence. <laughs> so I suppose um, the first place to start is uh, is that maybe you could tell our listeners about your background in education. You actually work with us. We should probably say that off the bat. You're one of our, our colleagues, although we haven't seen you in person in some months now. Yes, we are it's been in- a long time. It really has. So tell us a bit about you, your background in education and in academia and the programmes that you work on at Cardiff Met. Absolutely. So my sort of specialist area is cognitive neuroscience um, and I did my PhD at Bangor University um, and it, it looked at this topic. So in my PhD, I, I used brain stimulation to look at predictive language function in an area of the brain that everyone sort of thought did motor planning, but actually it, it really plays a predictive role in a, a bunch of different processes. And then while I was doing my PhD, I uh, lectured a- alongside at Bangor. And then once I finished my PhD, I came here and that was just over three years ago. And here I work on two programmes. So I work on the undergraduate education psychology and special educational needs program and then I also work um, and I'm the program director for the MSc psychology and education uh, which is BPS accredited and on both of those programs I predominantly teach topics around cognitive psychology, neuroscience and uh, well cognitive neuroscience and research methods as well. So this is interesting for us because you know we're hearing terms like cognitive science, neuroscience, things like that being thrown around in debates around teaching and you know how we how we teach effectively and it can be a little bit intimidating uh, some yeah, people tend absolutely. to like to use that as, as a kind of way of saying I'm right and you're wrong so let's let's get right down to kind of basics here can you explain to us what we actually mean before we start getting into some of the really fun debates what do we actually mean by cognitive neuroscience Okay, so when when psychologists talk about cognition, so let's break that term down, cognitive neuroscientists. When when you think about cognition, firstly, what we're thinking about is mental processes, really. So cognitive psychology and the sort of study of cognition predates most, uh, well, many of the sort of common biological measures. So back when we couldn't put someone in a, in a scanner, we would look at their mental processes as best we could using behavioural measures. And so what I mean by mental processes are, are things like, for example, learning, memory, attention, problem solving, all these sort of internal processes that, that happen inside our minds. And cognitive psychology obviously try to understand those processes as best as possible and and would try and 
model how they felt those processes worked, you know, sort of step by step, what happens in, you know, just something simple, like when you perceive an image, what are the steps that occur in that process? And cognitive neuroscience is the the sort of study of the underlying biological and brain related processes that underpin those mental processes. So it's sort of joining together two fields, if you like. So this is interesting because, I, you know, you're talking about brain stimulation and thing like, things like that in your intro there. And, th- and then we're talking about, you know, the mind and learning and things like that. I mean, they're, they're, I, I remember we read the, the Weinstein and Sumeraki book, um, How We Learn, uh, A Visual Guide understanding how we learn yeah and and they were really careful to draw that distinction between the brain as like a a sort of thing I guess you can you can poke and prod and look at and all of that and the mind uh, which which is I suppose something completely different I mean can we just kind of get our heads around the differences between those things and the, the things we can and can't know about those two different things yeah absolutely so I guess one of the sort of first things to think about when we're, when we're measuring the brain, actually, even now, technology is not good enough for us to know everything that there is to know about what's going on inside our brain. You know, one of the, I guess, sort of the, uh, I always use the word sexiest in my lectures. I don't know if that's appropriate here. <laughs> oh, I the, do that too. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so one of the one of the sort of sexiest techniques really is fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And whenever you see people in the media, newspapers, etc., talking about brain related studies, it's always fMRI, and it's always um, you've always got this nice little picture of a brain, and little areas are lit up, but this technique actually only measures blood flow. So we are taking a sort of proxy measure. We're assuming that the areas that are lit up are doing the function that we've asked the person to do because there is more blood in that area. So, you know, it's it's not even a true measure of activity per se. It is yeah, a measure of blood more than anything. And so lots of the conclusions that we draw from this obviously are based on this assumption. And there are some debates in the literature around whether increased blood flow is good or whether actually a little bit less blood flow in an area means that you're more efficient. There are other issues around the the sort of timing of it. The other, the sort of big issue with fMRI is that actually in terms of brain processing speed it's fairly slow you know you're measuring in in sort of seconds and minutes mainly minutes as opposed to milliseconds which is when activity is happening it's happening in literally milliseconds speed the brain is very complicated and we don't have the tools right now to measure everything that is going on within it and so within sort of cognitive neuroscience and within psychology more generally, we can try and and measure stuff behaviorally and then we can try and apply that to the brain. And in many respects, we can. We can begin to sort of tease apart the areas, the different sort of networks that might do different processes. But yeah, we can never, at this point, we can't know everything. Our measurement tools are just not 
good enough. So we, we can see that the mind, the brain is lighting up, but we don't necessarily know what that what that means for the mind. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, essentially. So for the mind, the, the processes are really, really complex. And in cognitive psychology, we can start to sort of tease apart when those processes might occur using behavioral measures, using EEG. That's a really popular tool. This is, this is, you've probably seen it in films and stuff where you put electrodes against the scalp and you measure brain activity. And this gives you a little bit more sort of temporal detail. You can see in a much sort of more detailed time frame what's happening. But again, all you, all you know is that this part of the brain is active or there is activity happening at this time. What you can't tell from fMRI and, and EEG is specifically what process is being done. And and so, yeah, in terms of the mind at the moment, what happens in the mind in terms of these cognitive processes is just so complex that teasing it apart using neurosciences is difficult. It's a really hard job. I guess not wanting to go too much down the rabbit hole here, but I, I often wonder sort of morally and ethically how, how much we ought to be seeking to discover about the mind. <laughs> I just get a bit uh, scared, you know, in an Orwellian sense of what could happen if we knew to the nth degree what was going on in everybody's mind. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I'm diverting from the questions a bit here, Louise. (laughs) But of course, I mean, bringing this back to the here and now, obviously teachers have this same sort of sense of frustration and maybe it's useful for teachers out there to hear, you know, how far the science does go and actually where it has still a long way to go. Because, you know, teachers in the classroom, we we use terms like, you know, making learning visible and uh, really trying to benefit from the findings of cognitive science so that we can use strategies to help our pupils make progress and develop and, you know, in a more holistic sense, you know, leave us having gained more than when, when they started with us. So, in your opinion then with this kind of increased interest particularly in the education sphere within classroom teaching into cognitive science and and cognitive psychology in your opinion what's the most compelling sort of detail and areas of interest for classroom teachers and to what extent do you think it should influence their practice um so uh, I mean I guess the field is huge so I you know obviously I I went away and thought about this before today and and sort of pulled out some things that I feel are important. But I, you know, I I don't want to sort of mean to say that anything else is is less important because the field is is huge. And, you know, we would have to do, you know, hours and hours and hours of podcasts to get through all of the the really, you know, important findings that are out there. But I think for me personally, one of the really big areas or, or sort of really personally important areas for me is the idea of sort of growth mindsets so I'm sure you guys have heard of growth mindsets before I, I don't know if you want me to go over what I mean yeah, by if, that uh, that's, well predominantly the person who comes into my mind is the work of Carol Dweck so but but for those there might be some people out there who who are unfamiliar with that work so yeah please give us a bit of a, an overview yeah, that'd be really course. helpful so people who have a growth mindset basically feel like they can change and grow and learn 
effectively um, and, and sort of change who they are as a person. People who have very fixed mindsets feel that they are sort of stuck as they are. They are who they are and they can't develop, they can't change. And in terms of learning particularly this comes from some of these neuro myths that I know we're going to talk about a little bit later but this idea that either you're smart or you're not smart and if you're not smart then then sort of what's the point of trying that's a very fixed mindset and actually I think one of the reasons that this is so important for me is that if everyone can come round to the idea of having a growth mindset they will flourish in education because they can understand that they can improve, improve their learning, improve their skills. And that obviously translates to various educational outcomes. And actually, one of the the really good things that teachers can do to help encourage growth mindsets is is sort of uh, adapt the way that they praise uh, pupils in the classroom. So one of the the sort of common ways of, of praising people is to say, oh, you're really smart you're really clever or, or you're really talented and, and it makes it sound like and it's it's an ingrained aspect of, of that person as opposed to praising the effort that went into it or the, the strategies that they used. And actually the latter is more helpful than the former because you're praising them for the the effort. They are more likely to put in effort in the future and more likely to seek challenges praising cleverness research shows that it's more likely to lead them to do tasks that demonstrate that cleverness again so they don't necessarily push themselves they want maybe slightly easier tasks that make them look smart and so you know just a really simple thing that you know and I I'm sure all of us as as educators are guilty of it. You you know, you you see a, a student who's doing really well and you, you think, oh, they're so clever and you tell them that or they're so talented and you tell them, but actually just this really little change can help to encourage that growth mindset that helps them to seek activities that will better demonstrate their effort, help them to sort of self-regulate their learning a little bit more. And actually research shows that, students who are given this sort of feedback um, and have more sort of growth mindsets tend to then be better at at transitions between different educational levels and that sort of thing. So, you know, it has a really broad impact on educational outcomes, not just grades, um, you know. Now, this is interesting because I was just thinking that, you know, we can we can perhaps feel like we're we're kind of heading in a very sciencey direction and just looking at learning as this very sort of dry, you know, how do how do we make them the most efficient acquirers of facts, you know, hoovering up facts all day long. But what you're talking about there is something perhaps a little bit more pastoral, a little bit more to do with with behaviours and, and dispositions and things like that. And it makes me think about the new curriculum for Wales, which at its heart defines core competencies and, and dispositions in our pupils and, and now we're now we're perhaps into into some areas where which some teachers are going to be particularly comfortable which which is talking about trying to foster you know that ethos and those behaviors and those dispositions in our pupils so 
what can we learn from from cognitive new, neuroscience other, other than the growth mindset perhaps uh, is there anything else out there which, which might help us understand more around those behaviors and dispositions and perhaps less about those those dry kind of knowledge-based grade-based sides of things yeah absolutely i am um, again when i was sort of prepping for this i you know i was thinking broadly about what what we want of learners what we want from our students you know myself as a as a teacher of adults and and I'm sure many of your listeners teach uh, children as well and obviously one of the biggest aspects of learning not just in the classroom but in general is motivation motivation to improve yourself motivation to find out additional information certainly sort of reflecting on my own experiences so much of succeeding at university is the motivation to go above and beyond just attending lectures. It, you know, it's all the additional stuff around it. And actually being a sort of a, a well-rounded person, once you reach adulthood, you've left school, you've left education, is about motivating yourself to learn other things, to go out and, and think about politics, for example, you know, understanding political systems within our own country, that, that takes a lot of motivation to learn all of those things. And so I felt like this was a, a real priority. And obviously, we think a lot in psychology about motivation, it's obviously really important. Um, and lots of the research here comes from sort of social cognitive neuroscience, and social cognitive theory. And, and obviously, this sort of links in with that issue we've we've just spoken about this sort of integration of cognitive psychology and and cognitive neuroscience which obviously can be difficult but when we think about motivation we we usually think of it in terms of intrinsic and extrinsic motivators so as i'm sure uh, you guys are aware when you have intrinsic motivators those are things within yourself that motivate you to do well interest curiosity excitement for the experience of learning extrinsic motivators are are motivators that come from outside of you things like particularly in school parental pressure is a big one or you often hear about parents bribing their children you know if you get x number of this grade I'll give you 10 pounds for each one you know these are very external extrinsic motivators and generally research shows that the intrinsic motivators are the most effective but obviously they're also the hardest ones to foster so when I was thinking about this and what might be valuable for for your listeners to know I was you know thinking about motivation and sort of fostering that within classrooms because you know of course the classroom experience and learning within the classroom it's not just about learning what you're going to complete in the exam it's not just about learning to to pass a specific exam there are so many learning experiences that you get within the classroom which i think are really important and some of the things that that came up for me when i was thinking about this was uh, obviously praise is is a, a big one that I've just talked about the types of praise that you give this idea of praising effort and strategies with a sort of caveat that where there's room for improvement it you know you should give constructive feedback uniformly this is one of those myths again uniformly positive feedback actually has a detrimental effect and you should be being constructive you know part of the satisfaction of development is overcoming obstacles and uniformly positive feedback actually removes those obstacles which 
is an issue. But then also things like social interaction are a really big deal within fostering motivation, you know, mixing up groups of people so that you have students who are more able mixed in amongst amongst the rest of the class, partly because then they become almost sort of role models for those groups of students. They they demonstrate how to maybe solve a problem or demonstrate a skill that's really excellent. And the other students in the group actually if they if they feel sort of like they belong to the to the class, they feel like they are similar to the person who is doing well, then actually this gives them the motivation, the internal motiv- motivation to try and succeed. If they can do it, I can do it too and I can use those strategies to try and solve the problem for myself. And so really anything that can be done to foster sort of thinking aloud, sharing problem solving strategies, those sorts of tools in a classroom can be really helpful to foster that motivation that's really important. And then I guess also within that is setting of goals as well. The right sort of goal is really important. I often, I think there's a focus perhaps on performance related goals about completing specific tasks perhaps to a certain standard I'm going to pass this exam I'm going to pass this test it's all about performance where actually the focus really needs to be on goals around learning and improving skills improving competence on something because then your goal is about learning something more in a more sort of holistic way, learning overall, rather than focusing on the performance on a a specific outcome. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really (laughs) does. It's got me thinking all sorts here. I I suppose there's maybe greater sort of longevity to the feeling or or the impact on intrinsic motivation if if the emphasis isn't just on the satisfaction from this short-lived goal having been met you know you know there's, yeah. all, there's, there's a lot of adrenaline to, I'm, I'm thinking about sport now you know you you win a game or you, you have that rush but there is actually a lot of slower satisfaction and pleasure to be had in problem solving I suppose it's it's that isn't it? it's, it's, it's when you're in the kind of depths of trying to figure out a problem that you know all kinds of emotion can be felt but not necessarily always negative and that can really fuel that intrinsic motivation I'm speaking absolutely from my own perspective as a learner as much as uh, as a teacher it's interesting as well that the point that you made about how we uh, organize groups for learning it struck me that uh, a lot of the advice that perhaps um, we might give and we talk a lot about differentiating in relation to attainment and and your pupil ability but Mm. I wonder if there was more emphasis on grouping for the sort of behaviours for learning the capacity for pupils who can employ metacognitive skills you know they might not necessarily be the most high achieving absolutely um, pupils in the class and I think that's maybe you know a bit of a revelation that was a revelation for me actually um when you said that yeah I you know um actually there's there's a really nice study that I teach teach my undergrads about metacognition that that really shows that these metacognitive strategies which we know are really important for effective learning they are independent of what we think of as sort of um intelligence um, and actually anyone can learn those metacognitive skills you know they are not associated with with this idea of attainment it, it's separate completely which I think is 
you know, again, feeds into this this idea, this growth mindset, this idea that anyone can can get better. You just have to work towards it. You can improve. You know, when I talk about this idea of mixing up groups so that you see others like yourself succeeding, you know, that can be on any skill. Obviously, there are, you know, I, I know we've spoken about this um, previously elsewhere. You know, there are so many skills that are important to learn from education that aren't about passing exams you know public speaking is so important managing your time these metacognitive skills they they're all really important in sort of future success but have nothing to do with the exams that you you necessarily sit at the end of a GCSE in English or whatever there's so much more going on and and so when you're thinking about maybe mixing up groups you you might want to think about not just attainment, but as you said, all of these other broader skills that are really a huge priority for personal outcomes at the end of education, as opposed to performance related outcomes. I, I, I really like that point you made as well, Louise, about, you know, really getting them to think aloud. It's almost fostering that internal voice that we perhaps we, we have, we, many of us have, but we've mev- never perhaps thought deeply about, you know, Tom and I have had this conversation before about, you know, do you speak to yourself? What do you what do you see? What do you visualize when this is happening? And it's, you know, going back to what you were saying, it's about getting them to kind of talk through the problem in their own heads, talk that aloud. So they're practicing that in class. And then maybe it becomes part of the way that they talk to themselves when they're working independently. I find that yeah, fascinating. Absolutely. And and the really valuable thing about that as well, obviously, it helps, it helps the individual learner to reflect on how they the strategy that they use to solve that problem and they can sort of reflect on how effective that was and perhaps use it later but but also then if you're voicing it to maybe not the entire class but even just a a group of of students or pupils you can then possibly help to foster the, the transfer of those strategies to other pupils they might listen and think actually that worked really well for this person I'm, I might try to do that myself next time we come across a, a similar problem, you know, and, and obviously this is where the metacognition comes in. It might not necessarily be quite as overt as that. But but again, you know, metacognition research tells us it can be trained. You know, teachers are, can be really key in, in helping to improve metacognitive strategies. And that's that's one of those those ways in which metacognition could be integrated. So there's loads there for teachers to chew upon, you know, loads of really interesting things. I suppose you could imagine a teacher out there going, yeah, this is really interesting, but here's another hundred interesting things I'm expected to know about, you know, in my hard pressed (laughs) existence. So we know that, that in the education research world, you know, there's lots of talk about how we bridge the gap between education research and education practice and how, you know, we haven't always been very successful in that. So would you say that we perhaps have a similar issue there maybe with some of the research about psychology and cognitive neuroscience and all of that you know how do we look to bridge perhaps a similar gap between research and practice in this area yeah absolutely i there is it, it is really difficult you know i'm sure everyone in any sort of teaching related job right now is is absolutely feeling the pinch and it is you know very difficult to take on anything new and especially when there is so much literature related to to all of these topics 
And I read a really interesting article recently. Um, it actually came out in 2013. So it's not a particularly recent article, but I, I came across it recently uh, called Applying Cognitive Psychology to Education, Translational Educational Science. And it is really focused on cognitive psychology, particularly around memory. And, it you know, it talks at length about um the sort of cognitive psychology of memory and, and things like interleaving, which I'm sure lots of people have heard of. But one of the really good points it makes, of course, is that actually you have cognitive psychologists who are very concerned with understanding cognition. That is their priority. That is that is really their goal. And then you have teachers who obviously would like to benefit from that knowledge. But there is a sort of gap to be bridged between this very lab-based research and actual educational contexts, which are obviously very complicated. There's a lot going on there, not just in terms of the perhaps those like memory related functions, but then there are broader issues, you know, if a pupil comes to school hungry because they haven't been able to have breakfast, obviously that that is a much larger issue than whether or not a particular memory strategy is going to be helpful in the classroom. So obviously there's it's such a complex situation that it's very difficult to take a lab based piece of research and translate it to the classroom. And so what this researcher talks about, uh, Rodiger, he talks about this idea of a sort of field of, of research and, and science, this translational educational research where the cognitive psychology, cognitive and, you know, in many respects, other psychology fields are translated into something useful practically useful for teachers and obviously more and more we're seeing that you know there are many pieces of research that have applied psychology concepts to classroom scenarios you know there's lots of intervention based research now that that's begun to do this but i think there's a real difficulty because actually if if you're spending all of your time preparing for classes how are you going to go in and, and engage with all of this research? And I think one of the things that obviously we at Cardiff Met do really well is we have these great partnerships with schools. And so really, I think building up those partnerships and, and having those conversations where someone who is an expert can can talk through research, can offer up papers that might be useful, resources that might be useful, and start to have those conversations equally with teachers saying, well, actually, this probably wouldn't work because of X, Y, Z scenario that perhaps the researcher, I'm reflecting on myself here more than anything, perhaps the researcher wouldn't know because they haven't been in a school for a long while or haven't thought of something that the teacher's really aware of that's specific to that context. And I, yeah, I, you know, I don't think that there's necessarily a an easy line to draw. I think it's just about building a partnership between psychologists and and teachers to try and find a route through through this this science this yeah as as it's called in this paper this translational educational science we're going to move on now and uh, in our prep for this you mentioned a book that is kind of a, a required reading 
for your programs and something yes. that I think very early on in your teaching of undergraduates particularly but I would imagine your master's students too yeah I mean really you, everyone everyone I feel <laughs> could benefit from this yeah so I mean it, it has become a little bit um you know fair game to poke fun at people who are harboring uh neuromyths and and yes. that, you know still believe in some of these neuromyths but I think can we just call this a safe space and say if no, you do absolutely. then there is no shame <laughs> No, no, because they're, I mean, they're so prolific. They're just, they're completely ingrained. And and actually when I was, you know, I I sort of, I had some neuromyths in mind in preparation for this um, and then went and sort of had a rummage and and actually found some examples of neuromyths even amongst researchers in the field where they, there was an example, the example I'm thinking of is the, the number of neurons in the brain and this this idea of a hundred a hundred billion neurons in the brain yeah it's really been bandied around for many many years but actually a a more recent sort of best estimate puts the number of neurons at, at 86 billion and this was actually a really prolific you know just a simple google search and that you know if you just google how many neurons are there in the brain google tells you it's a 100 billion and so it's so difficult. These really pervasive sort of facts in inverted commas, you know, it's so difficult to fact check them because there are so many resources that will say conflicting things. And and obviously, if if you aren't looking for an expert source right off the bat, often because, you know, they can be a bit too jargon focused, it can be very sort of difficult to tease apart what they're trying to tell you, then yeah really it just um helps to perpetuate these neuromyths uh sort of without even necessarily a sort of malicious intent it, they think that it's true someone else has said it and it just keeps sort of rolling on um yeah so so really tough really tough to to fact check some of these things so i suppose without wanting to kind of um i don't know malign anybody who 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 does hold on to these and uh you know is, is a bit of a trigger warning to anybody out there who who might go oh my gosh I've, I've been doing this for years which would you say have the potential to be most dangerous if applied sort of literally in the classroom setting um so I guess uh th- one of the sort of very key ones is perhaps learning styles this is often something we talk about on on education degrees and and on our education psychology and SEN degree. It is still a very popular theory that has been largely largely shown to to not be an effective uh, tool. The learning styles aren't. It comes back to this idea of of growth mindsets again this really seems to be a theme for me today (laughs) because you you then you pigeonhole a person you say well actually your learning style is visual you know the the typical learning styles visual or uh, auditory kinesthetic sort of categorization of learners the idea of pigeonholing someone as you're a visual learner it takes the learning out of their hands it makes them feel like learning isn't in their control and and can cause a, a pupil or a, or a student to sort of switch off. Well, as soon as the the learning is in in, in uh, a sort of visual medium, I can't learn this information, and and it you know it, it, it you know it can make them give up completely. And and it's a really 
yeah, you, you know, it was obviously born out of wanting to support students, but actually it seems to now have the, the opposite effect. I think it's the Christodoulou teachers versus tech where she makes the point as well that as a teacher if you if you pander endlessly to these these preferences that pupils have got you can end up tying yourself in knots trying to represent information that is impossible to represent say in an auditory form when a simple kind of diagram would do it you know you end up making not only an enormous amount of work for yourself doing everything multiple ways but but also trying to do the completely impossible yeah, 100%. And and there's no evidence that it that it really helps. You know, that there's a, a lot of research debunking this. Um, and yeah, obviously, it can be harmful to the to the pupil, you know, that this, this sort of mindset that they can only learn in a, in a specific way, you know, that's going to have a, a long term impact on them. Not just if they choose to, to go on to additional education but then also you know in the workplace as well you know if if you're doing uh, CPD and you feel like you can't learn something new because it's not being presented in the right way you know you're closing yourself off from all of this knowledge because because you've got this mindset that you can't learn it because it's not in your learning style um, yeah I, I was gonna I was just gonna pick up on this because I, I've got confession to make here I, I when I was training on my template that was distributed by the university for our lesson plans, there was a box dedicated to VAC and we had to articulate what we were doing for the visual, auditory and kinesthetic learners in our classes. And that was, you know, back in, I started training in 2004. So... This research, obviously, I'm sure there are legitimate beginnings to these theories. And it just makes me think that, you know, that, as you said at the start, Louise, you know, there's a lot that we don't know and a lot that's emerging that maybe, you know, today's theories could in 10 years time be neuromyths. So, you know, how, how does a, how do we not fall foul of, of some of these things and turn them into fads and start pointing fingers or enshrine them in policy and then we end up kind of coming unstuck? I, I don't know. There's no easy answer to it, yeah. but those are my thoughts. It's really difficult. I think, so part of the issue, I think, with neuromyths particularly is that some of them actually don't necessarily have a an academic underpinning. There are plenty of neuromyths that have come about because of sort of mistaken assumptions the big one one of my personal bugbears is is that we only use 10 percent of our brains i'm sure lots of people have heard this one and a film was released probably a few years ago now but the entire premise was on the basis that we only use 10 percent of our brains and and you know i was i was quite upset that this company had screen louise (laughs) a little bit (laughs) Um, you seem you know, so mild mannered, but I can I can yeah. just imagine. But no, I uh, yeah, it was it was quite upsetting that obviously they'd made quite a lot of profit on a, a sort of perpetuating something that at this point was in the scientific community well known to be untrue. And actually, when you sort of look back at where this myth might have come from, we actually don't know. There's never been that that people can find. There's never really been a piece of research that has said we only use ten percent of our brains. 
when you look at sort of reviews of where these myths have come from, they can't find any evidence for it. And actually, one of the theories for this specific one is that it, it came from a sort of maybe a misinterpretation of neuroimaging research where when you're doing a specific task um, and specific areas of the the brain light up in response to doing that task, it, it might have come from this idea that actually, well, if only those small areas are lit up and that's approximately 10%, then perhaps we're only using 10% of the time. But the truth is, is that there are no studies that identify a, a percentage of brain use. And actually, what we do know about brain functioning is that it's a really, really complex collection of networks from across the brain that are used to complete tasks and and actually the the myth when it's examined more closely actually doesn't really make sense when you when you know and not everyone would know this but when you know that although our brain takes up about two percent of the mass of the human body it takes about 20 percent of the the energy used in the human body and so if it's using that, you know, a fifth of our energy, why would you then only use 10% of it? That, you know, that logic falls apart once it's examined more closely. And so, yeah, this is the issue with these myths is that sometimes actually we don't really know where they've come from and it, and, and it seems to be a sort of, uh, yeah, misrepresentation perhaps of findings, a, a sort of Chinese whispers effect as research trickles from academic circles out into general use uh, you know it's really it's really difficult to, to sort of track the paths of these um so yeah so there isn't an easy answer to your question about about avoiding them really other than making sure that when you're using a source that it is really from an expert you know be be suspicious of you know these sort of really sort of common ones are the sort of self-help websites that that then bring in neuroscience research without necessarily citing sources for example you know look for sources that have that expert background to avoid yeah the sort of chinese whispers of research that feeds neuromyths and, and misinformation I guess it does reinforce the points made earlier on about schools being places where sort of critical consumption of literature engaging with these sort of sources in a critical way becomes ever more important for, you know, assistant heads with um, a responsibility for teaching and learning, you know, and, and the sources that they're drawing upon for that and then how that translates uh, into sort of professional learning done with the whole staff body and and whether or not staff will in that environment then feel confident to critique discuss and um you know just think more critically and debate uh, you know a new technique that's being advocated be, uh, you know as for one to be rolled out school-wide so you know there, it really does hit home hard the point that we we always need to be engaging with with literature in in our jobs and yeah absolutely and and it's so hard you know if you've never done psychology before and then you're sort of dropped into cognitive neuroscience research that that's a, a sort of a terrifying place to be because there is a lot of jargon it, it is very difficult and and you know to add sort of insult to injury within the field that there's sometimes inconsistent use of terms one group will call a, a specific brain area by one name where another another group will use a different 
a different sort of system. So, you know, without that sort of underlying understanding of these sort of key terms and and uh, the sort of key theories within within psychology it can be really difficult to navigate this literature and you know i know that there there's a sort of a shift now towards integrating more and more psychology into teacher education which which is great because it will help it will help with this issue this this sort of critical consumption of of psychology literature of course that's not not very helpful for the teachers who are who are already teachers or who have you know been teachers for a long time again this is where these conversations between psychologists and teachers really needs to start happening more and more because because then there can be this um discussion of ideas and and discussion of of new and emerging uh, theories and literature so just to kind of pull this back for our teachers then, I mean, we've we've all agreed that they're busy people, but we've all, all agreed also that this is a fascinating area uh, to get your head around. Could you recommend some kind of nice gateway materials, perhaps, for, for busy teachers to kind of dabble in, in this world? And then perhaps also, perhaps a little bit of information about the master's programme that you're in charge of, just in case they get really keen. Uh, what, what would they yeah. expect if they were to enrol on that? Brilliant. Well, so uh, in terms of textbooks, there are there are two that I think are really nice, sort of easy to consume books. Uh, the first one is um, a book called Neuromyths, debunking false ideas about the brain um, and then the second one is called the science of learning 77 studies that every teacher needs to know and both of these have been written with teachers in mind and sort of translates the the research into a way that is sort of useful for for teachers to understand so yeah those are sort of the the big ones i think the masters uh, that I'm program director for the MSc Psychology and Education. So this is accredited by the BPS, the British Psychological Society. So this means that it sort of covers all of the the key areas of psychology. And the really great thing about this program is that it covers it all, all of these areas within an educational context. Everything that you learn about psychology would be applied in education. I don't know if you guys can hear this. Sorry, there's like a it's a okay. van that drives around and it does a loudspeaker thing. And I, I'm yeah. sure you could we <laughs> must pause for a moment. Yeah, yeah, we are picking a little bit of that. You... It's the most inconvenient timing. Like, I, I didn't even it. know what they're saying. I I think that they're, they're looking for steel, but I've never been able to understand a single word that they've said. <laughs> they're saying, bring out your neuromyths. Bring out your neuromyths. <laughs> Any old new remiss. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I thought oh, I was going away, going but it's getting louder. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> I have plenty more neuromyths. You said you you put in bold, go for your yeah, life. So I we have a long list. were imagining this was going to be therapeutic for you. You, know? <laughs> you were just yeah, going to go cathartic. in like an insane auctioneer, you know, speaking 90 miles an hour. I don't know. Louise, I, I, uh, at Christmas, you'll you'll love this one. I was uh, looking for, you know, just a board game or a fun little game to play at Christmas. Yeah. And there was one of those uh, right brain, left brain, brain. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's my top. <laughs> my top 
Uh, yeah, just under ten percent is the right-brained versus left-brained people, and it's it's um it's it's almost because it's such a bugbear. It's become like a running joke in my family, um, and you know people will say to me, "Oh, that's very left-brained of you, Louise," and <laughs> just to annoy me. Oh, brilliant! Oh, yeah. oh brilliant! Um, yeah. We should we should start a one-minute timer and just say as many as you can do in a minute. Go. <laughs> Um, I think they've gone. They've they've gone. gone. (laughs) They've gone. They've got a van now, have they? Have to crush them into little cubes. Okay. What was I saying? Yeah. So the MSc Psychology and Education uh, is uh, BPS accredited. So the BPS is the British Psychological Society, and they uh, accredit. Uh, psychology programs Um, and what this means basically is that we are covering the the breadth of of sort of the key topics within psychology but the goal of this master's is also to integrate those topics with education so whenever you learn anything about psychology in this course it's always applied then to educational contexts including, for example, strategies that you, you might use, but also a lot of information about research methods and and that sort of critical examination of um, psychological research. We actually offer this part-time as well in, in, in such a way that if teachers might be interested in doing this programme, they, they could do it part-time alongside their job. We do have a teacher already enrolled with us who teachers and, and also does the program alongside so you know it's it is possible and um yeah happy to chat to anyone if anyone would be interested you know please do send me an email um, I'm getting a lot of interest from teachers which is really great wonderful and I suppose maybe down the line it would be great to uh, get some of your students on talking about you know their own research and what they've discovered perhaps there's a, oh, another yeah, episode absolutely. in the making there yeah um they're coming up with really uh, interesting and innovative ideas, I think. So, you know, it'd be brilliant to to do that. And and hopefully, obviously, things are difficult right now. But you know, the more the more that we can get students doing research in classrooms and and sort of uh, answering questions that teachers want answered, you know, the better, really watch this space <laughs> Louise that was um a really interesting uh, it was a lot in there um hopefully for our listeners as Tom said to to start mulling over and and thinking about it in the context of their own classroom um situations so um and, and you know n- n- notwithstanding the kind of um the pandemic situation and, and what you've said and how that chimes with uh, the the blended learning that's going on at the moment but again that's another episode I think what we'd like from you now <laughs> is a contribution to our short slot so we're hoping that um, you've had the opportunity to, to think about these um, we ask our listeners as our avid listeners will know to um, contribute something to try something interesting and a well-being tip so I'm just going to say take your pick Louise which of those three do you want to start off with well I think the, the well-being one it's probably top of top of my list. I I have a dog, and so for me, really the the sort of the well being tip for me, the way that I've been most looking after my well being is is walking my dog. So he gets three walks a day now, 
just sort of short ones, uh, sort of 20 minutes or so. But, you know, it's just really great to get out the house uh, and to be outdoors, rain or shine or or snow, as it was most recently. And, you know, to sort of touch on the, the, the psychology of that, obviously, you know, it's great to sort of step away from your, your desk, of course, but also, you know, that sort of time to to mull over any issues really helps with problem solving um the the sort of biological factors related to walking obviously help improve your mood and things as well so there's really huge benefits i think from from taking regular breaks so you know i'd i'd highly recommend a dog to anyone because they're wonderful (laughs) and also make sure that you're then walking all the time (laughs) which is really great Excellent. You can you can go on about dogs, a pair of you, after this this recording's finished. I'm gonna <laughs> move things oh, we off will. very quickly. Uh, <laughs> Are you not a dog person, Tom? Well, no, I'm God. just the only one of the three of us that doesn't have a dog. So uh, yes, oh. I'm, it's my responsibility to keep things moving along here. And apparently, we're now giving our guests the agency to choose the order of the short slots. This is this is a new uh, a new thing. How so do you like them off, apples? yeah, Brilliant. off you go, Louise. Hmm. I mean, I've been trying to listen to. Uh, more sort of um classical music at the moment obviously there's a neuromyth in there uh that the idea that Mozart effect is it the Mozart effect yeah Yeah. that I mean that's been widely debunked but regardless you know I I find it it's nice firstly because obviously it's it's quite it can be quite relaxing but also um I I feel like because there's no lyrics involved actually then you don't you don't sort of get the interference with what you're doing at the time if you're um, working you you aren't then sort of splitting your attention between the words on the screen and the words that you're listening to as well which is really great so that's you know a a very general something interesting it's probably some cognitive psychology in there (laughs) yeah probably (laughs) and uh something to try the biggest thing for me is is um leaning into the awkwardness uh, I didn't know if you guys ever have that sensation where you've asked a, a question of the group and for whatever reason they're not immediately filling the, the silence. And for me, you know, I really, I lean into that. I'm quite happy for those awkward long pauses, the, the sort of more socially awkward you feel, you know, the better because then, you know, eventually they do contribute. And I, I'm feeling more and more during the sort of circumstances where we're teaching now where it's online and it's a little bit easier to sort of social loaf I think because there are lots of people on the screen everyone's microphones are turned off and there isn't that sort of social pressure of being in the room with someone to contribute and so yeah I'm finding that at the moment that's that's sort of my the thing that's happening for me quite often at the moment is is yeah letting the silence happen for a while while they uh, eventually sort of someone will step up and 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 start the start the discussion and and of course once someone talks it makes it easier for everyone else to talk I think yeah there's like a collective sigh of relief isn't there that the silence has been broken and we, and we can yeah. move forward but you're right I, we, we've spoken about this before haven't we Tom on the podcast and I but I really like the way you've put it there about leading into the awkwardness do you tell them that you're doing that do you tell yes. them that you know it's yeah I'm just, I'm really I'm just gonna let you sit with this <laughs> yeah yeah okay, you know, I'm happy to wait guys uh yeah absolutely you know obviously um 
you know, there are times where they're silent because they really, they don't know the answer. And obviously at those times there's, there's scaffolding that has to happen and, and sort of collective problem solving. But, you know, when there's a, a discussion to be had and, and you want people's opinions, definitely. And, I, you know, I'm very open that I won't, I'm happy to wait for as long as it takes. And, and then some, some brave soul will, will step up and, and begin the discussion and, and, and then it, you know, as you say, there's a there's a collective sigh of of relief, and then people start to talk much more. We've much said this before, actively. haven't we? And there's there's all sorts of reasons why people sit there in that awkward silence, and sometimes it does come from a place that they they don't want to give a rubbish answer, and they want you know they they respect the the class environment enough that they want to do a good answer, and that takes time, yeah. you know. And sometimes it's because they can't be bothered. It's just about knowing the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, it's it's very difficult. The online, you know, I think without those social cues of being in a classroom, you know, it can be very intimidating, intimidating not knowing us, how what, well, yeah, for us <laughs> Throwing as well. it out into the void, yeah. Um, but very intimidating for them to not necessarily yeah. know as soon as they start talking how their contribution is being received because they can't, you know, they can't get a read on other people's, uh, other people's responses. So, you know, it's a really, it's a tough situation we're in right now for all of us, I think, and and you know online is you know there are many many positives you know that it's great that we've got the technology to do this but but on the flip side it can be quite an intimidating um experience Louise, thank you so, so much for your generosity. It's been really, really great having you um, on the podcast and we really do hope um, and you have an open invite to come back and discuss anything that you're you're wanting to share with our, our listeners down the line. So, um, you know, your, your podcast seat will remain warm for you. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really great to, uh, to be on. I've, I've been really excited to do this. So thanks. Thanks very much for having me. So thank you to you all for tuning in. Uh, we'll be in your ease again in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr Louise Allen-Walker, Programme Director for the MSc Psychology and Education here at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Thanks to her for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. In the meantime, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.